Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Thank you very much for joining. I have uh, breaking news to share with all of you. I had thought, in fact, part of me had really hoped that as it was Friday, we would be able to just relax from what has been a very uh, grueling and depressing and difficult news cycle in the last week or so. But no, I can't say that will be the case because I have an update on the Florida shooting. Yesterday, I said, I don't know if I said it on air, if I was just talking to guys here in the hut about this. But I said out loud, I don't know how it could get any worse. What we know about the missed red flags, the signs, all of that. How could it be worse? The FBI looked incompetent and was. Local law enforcement looked incompetent. And then we found out that there was a sheriff's deputy on the scene who was there. The guns were still firing inside the building, and he took up a defensive crouch position outside the school and never went inside. I thought, well, short of the individual getting away, Nicholas Cruz actually getting away and not being caught, how could this have gone more poorly from the perspective of law enforcement? I spoke too soon because... And this is not a coincidence, my friends. This is not a coincidence. We are just finding out now, Friday afternoon before we all, or Friday evening before we all go off into our weekends, that there were four, that's right, four armed officers on the scene, Broward County Sheriff's deputies, who never went inside the building including after the shooting had stopped. Now, there was quite a spirited debate after the revelation that one armed sheriff's deputy was there and did nothing. A lot of people, including we had at least one or two callers here saying, oh, you can't judge, you don't know, and unless you've, unless you've taken fire yourself, you know, how could anyone say anything? First of all, I... I reject that argument, um, not just in a uh, specific sense to this case, which I think is also, I mean, if you're not going to, if you have a gun and you're not going to do something when a bunch of kids are all being shot up, uh, you're never going to do something. This was not a situation that um, there is any gray area and it's not like, anyway, any gray about the need for action, but also if a surgeon is doing surgery and freezes up and watches a patient bleed out on the table, I don't hear people say, oh, well, you know, 
unless you've been a surgeon, you don't know. What if the surgeon was drunk, you know, derelict in his duty? Well, you know, you don't know the pressures of being a surgeon. Sorry, that's not how it works. You take responsibility for lives and lives are placed in your hands. You have a duty, a duty to action and a duty to uphold certain standards of conduct. But four, that's right, four sheriff's deputies on the scene did not go inside. And before I I get any calls or emails from people who, for whatever reason, like to take the like to take the part of the law enforcement officer who certainly was derelict in his duty and and I said yesterday and will again today was being cowardly understand that other cops showed up from the Coral Springs Police Department and were like what the heck is this you guys aren't going inside there's four of you you all have guns the shooting is stopped you're not going in the building Coral Springs cops were upset. In fact, the reason this information is coming out at all, I think, is because within the Coral Springs PD, people were very upset. The, those officers were upset because they're saying, oh, you know, we ran in. We went right into the building. We went right into what could have been a dangerous, life-threatening situation for us. What the heck is with this Broward County Sheriff's Department? Does anyone want to offer up any answers? I don't have them other than, wow. And also now that adds additional context, doesn't it? It's not one guy. It's not one person who was there and didn't take action. Bullets flying inside that school building, ending young lives. We also should note there were a lot of people that had to be rushed, dozens that had to be rushed to the hospital. Some bled out in the hospital. Seconds count. These the trauma surgeons who have come out to speak about the aftermath of this incident uh, were very clear that the timing really mattered. So even the gunfire stops. I'm just wondering, is it okay for them to set up a perimeter? And you know, do do they have to wait for the national guard to show up? At, at at what point do they go inside the building? Now this is also really interesting from the from the policy perspective. I mean, it's horrifying from the what's going on here with law enforcement. And I would note that the Coral Springs officers are like, uh, "We are police. We're going in." So thank you, Coral Springs. They they went right in, and there was no Broward County sheriff's deputies in this case. And look, I know Broward County's huge, and there's hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of sheriffs. Deputies. We're talking about four, but it doesn't. This doesn't look good. This doesn't look good for, for that department or for that, uh, that region. And I just didn't, I didn't think it was possible to find out this could be even worse, but it is worse. How could they show up and not go inside? I mean, guys, come on. You know, I understand that we, we want to give first responders and law enforcement every benefit of every doubt, but in this case, is there even really a doubt? This is interesting also because it influences the way that we have to think about this gun control discussion. Because what, what is now clear beyond any reasonable doubt is if you are going to rely on the government to protect you, you are going to be sorely disappointed. Sometimes they can, sometimes they will. 
But if that's your if that is your your only choice, that's the only choice we can talk about. If we're not going to discuss citizens who teach to be able to conceal carry, if we're if we're not going to talk about uh, additional force and precautions that can be taken from a security standpoint on in schools and on on campuses. You just better hope that it's not, you know, the four guys from the Broward Broward Sheriff's Department who shows up the next time there's a mass shooting. I mean, I'm I am appalled. I I guess they one saw the other and they didn't go in and they they'll have to make some explanation of this. But like I said, before anyone calls in and says you weren't there, you don't know. Other officers who were there were furious. Other officers were like, "Well, that is crap. That is dereliction of duty. Kids were dying in there." So at least they've been called out by their own. At least this isn't a, oh, it'll, all these Monday morning quarterbacks. People love to, oh, the Monday morning quarterbacks. Now, there's some basic human obligations that I think and some basic obligations of duty and the office that we're talking about here, the sheriff's department, that we're allowed to expect. Right? Keep in mind, the, the whole premise here of why, you know, I can't walk around New York City with a firearm on my you know on my hip and and you can't in New York. I mean it's impossible basically. It's very very hard to get a a concealed carry permit here unless you're really connected and really rich. Um the whole premise is that the cops will at least, you know, they'll show up and take risks to themselves and here in New York and other places they do day in and day out all the time. But they clearly didn't in Broward County. There's a problem. Something went very, very wrong here. And this has been known, and th- my, my friends, I, it's not a conspiracy. It is a cover-up, as in this, this information was held from us as, as long as they possibly could. It was absolutely held by the Broward Sheriff's Department until after that CNN town hall. That was not an accident. The timing was all planned out. And, and the fact that I'm here on a Friday when I was hoping to— just be able to kind of freestyle it with you and talk about whatever and have an, an additional update to this terrible shooting in Florida that shows even greater incompetence from the law enforcement entities involved, that shows even greater failures. That's really what this is, a failure of the state to protect children and, and teachers and, and adults in a school. Just utter government failure. This is a catastrophic implosion of government responsibility and obligation uh, obligations to the people of Florida. It's a complete disgrace. And, you know, we have this additional information. I mean, yesterday, I know people are saying, oh, it's one officer. And, you know, if you weren't there and you don't know and everything. And this is there's a lot of this on social media last night, too. Well, now it's four officers. At, at, at what point is it just beyond the pale? At what point do we get to finally say this is just gross? Uh, I, I think we've long since passed it. But if anyone still wants to make the case that the four armed officers should not, and not, not a single one of them should even go in after the shooting stops. Because remember, Nicholas Cruz ditched the, ditched the rifle and was like, well, I'm just going to go walk and got a mile from the school. He was done. They still didn't go in. What do you think about this? 844-900-2825. We're gonna, we got this. We've got also the 
uh, some boycotts that are starting with the or not necessarily boycott corporate action we'll call it of the NRA severing ties to the NRA from some major companies out there. I didn't even get to CNN's lies from uh, yesterday, or I got to some of them, but not all of them. There's more, no surprise there. So uh, we've we've got to get into this a bit more, my friends. I thought we would uh, be able to move on to other stories, but nope, here we are. The president was talking today, uh, talked about North Korea, had his meeting with the Australian, Australian prime minister. They talked about North Korea as well as a bunch of other things. Gun control came up. And then also Trump at CPAC. We'll get into that. That, that was a bit, there was some lighter, lighter fare with the president speaking at CPAC. So we'll revisit some of those moments with you. But there was also some very intense stuff that uh, Trump talked about. So we, we've uh, we got a packed show. We got a lot to lot to discuss. Eight four four nine hundred two eight two five. We will be right back. Look, you had one guard. He didn't turn out to be too good. I will tell you that. He turned out to be not good. He was not a credit to law enforcement. That I can tell you. He's trained his whole life, but when it came time to get in there and do something, he didn't have the courage, or something happened. But he certainly did a poor job. There's no question about that. He was there for five minutes. For five minutes. That was during the entire shooting. He heard it right at the beginning. So he certainly did a poor job. But that's a case where somebody was outside. They're trained. They didn't react properly under pressure or they were cowards. It was a real shot to the police department. There's the commander-in-chief himself referring to what happened with law enforcement uh, on the scene of the Parkland, uh, that Marjorie Douglas High School shooting. Um, uh, every line lit up like a Christmas tree. I knew it would as soon as we got into this, so let's let's get to it here. Jeff in Florida, good to talk to you. Yes, sir. Um, I'm former Air Force Security Forces and a DOD cop, and I got to tell you, not to give these cowards a pass, but you've got to look at this sheriff department's training because we are trained to go in. First man there goes in. The second man there goes in. And we go in until we take him out. And if it means we die, that that's, I mean, I'm not trying to be, you know, a, a motivation poster, but that's the job. And um, isn't that the job for the sheriff's deputies to too, though, Jeff? Shooter. Isn't, isn't that what they sign up for also? I mean, I'm a. Well, it depends on their training. Is that what they do? I mean, you've got to go and see, because uh, this is a fairly new uh, tactic, and it's come about because of active shooters, because just like... Um, well, Columbine, right? At Columbine, the cops were all there, and, and the protocol was, because they figured it might be a hostage situation or something, that you exactly. wait till SWAT arrives, and it was just exactly. a, a bloodbath. And so, but it, that was 1999, right? So it's been a long time since that's been the protocol. Well, it's hard to believe that any sheriff's department would still have that kind of uh, a training and SOP, but I'm just telling you that, that that is what you do. You go in, and uh, you don't wait for backup. You go in. Right. If nothing else, you make the guy use up some bullets. I, I, I just can't imagine. I can't and remember also, they're at a school. You know, this isn't a nightclub where maybe, you know, they're or, you know, a bar, and it was like a dispute, and you don't know what's going on. They're at a school. It's a school shooting. It's very obvious what's going on here. And they're the only hope these kids have because it's a gun-free zone. I mean, I know you know this, Jeff, but when you put, you know, gosh, how much worse can the situation get when we know more about it? I mean, look, thank you for your service and and thank you for for your perspective. I just, I'm, it's just so frustrating. 
Uh, Mac in Texas. Mac's also former military. Hey, Mac. Hello, Buck. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for your call. I bet your blood pressure's up. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty rough to hear this stuff. Yeah, I know. I, I Let me give you a little background on myself. Um, I'm a Virginia Tech graduate, uh, and that was by far the worst school shooting ever. I uh, had friends of mine who were there at the time, uh, and I happened to be working for the Air Force doing consulting work on counterterrorism at the time of the Virginia Tech shooting, and we did a study. And everybody was saying, well, this, and you know, profiling the guy, and so on and so forth. I said, no, 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 you're looking at the wrong equation. I said, the equation is we have guns, period. People will get guns, period. What we need to do is change the architecture and put locks on the inside of classrooms, m- make these long hallways go away, have fire doors that close when you pull the fire alarm so that there isn't this long, uninterruptible shooting gallery uh, for for the shooters to be able to take advantage of. And these are just some of the uh, architectural changes that were recommended. I'm not sure anybody ever actually read the memo, but we did write it. Uh, and and th- this comes from a, a guy who has lived in Florida. I was assigned to the National Hurricane Center. On my second day there, they tried to carjack me. And, you know, I'm over six feet, a uh, little, little heftier than 200 pounds. And uh, I was just furious. I was furious. I was thinking, this is my own country. I'm being attacked in my own country. This is nonsense. So I naturally I fought back. But the whole time in my, in my head is this absolute sense of denial and anger over the whole thing. So the fact that these guys weren't even angry enough to go in, much less, much less whether their training uh, was, was there. I mean, granted, training, yeah, train, train, train. This is what we do aboard ship. We train, 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 so that when all of the events begin to unfold in this chaotic form, you know what to do. You're now in your training mode. You're not in a mode of Jesus. Yeah, you're not in panic or frozen mode. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you, you already have the answers of, what do I do now? You fall back to your training. And and did these guys have that kind of training? I don't know. I, uh, clearly, I suspect whatever training they had was minimal. These guys may have been jailers, and they were assigned to the school uh, for for whatever reasons, maybe this last yeah. two years of their service. I have no idea. Well, Mac, I appreciate I you have... calling in, and thank you for your service as well. we got to run into a break here in a second. We'll get into more calls, folks, afterwards, because it is Friday, and I was planning on taking a lot of calls. I would just note, though, that if, if you are in a position of authority and you are carrying a firearm, um, and I, I, have, I have been in this position where you are carrying a firearm and, and it is expected that you will use that firearm as part of your duty, that is the expectation. There's no like, oh, I've got this gun, but it's for show. You know, it's my job and I have a job to do, but this gun is just here, you know. You're not wearing it to look cool. So... I think we can have some expectations of conduct and duty. We'll be back. I don't think him going into the building would have prevented any deaths. By the time he got over to the building, the um, shooter, the gunman was on the third floor. There were children in the hallway that he was shooting. Um, 
if Officer Peterson was up there, he would have been in a, a spot to have to shoot in a hallway where not only the shooter was, but other children were. So I think Delaney said it best when she said that there's other things to focus on. We want to focus on uh, changing the laws, making the schools safer going forward. I think that um, Officer Peterson is being used as a scapegoat. So that's a teacher from Marjorie uh, Douglas High School giving us her her sense of the law enforcement tactics here. And I just w- without any disrespect intended beyond the uh, analytic shortfalls here, she has no idea what she is talking about. It, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if he goes if he goes in or not. There are people who are bleeding to death from trauma. They have wounds that if cared for, they could they could live. It doesn't matter if he goes in the building. Oh, and he might have. This also goes to the the concern you'll see only among liberals for whatever reason. But they're always worried. Well, what if the good guy with the gun makes a mistake? I'd rather the good guy with the gun try to make a mistake than just let the bad guy with the gun just keep killing everybody. But like I said, you notice we will hear the the tactical analysis of a teacher and everybody will say, well, you know, you can't you can't criticize. No, no, we can actually. Uh, We can. Uh, Nate, who's calling from Sandy Hook, who says that he was a, a private security guard in Newtown at the time of Sandy Hook. Nate, thank you. What's going on? Thank you for calling. How are you, Buck? I'm all right. Good, how are you? I'm good. So, so that's that's quite a story. I didn't realize you. So, you're from Sandy Hook. Uh, I'm actually from Newtown, which is about two and a half miles away from Sandy Hook. Okay. Um, long story short, after Sandy Hook, after the Christmas break, um, our governor he implemented um, I don't know if it was an executive order or what, but he put private security in uh, most of the schools in Connecticut. Um, I was stationed at a uh, school in Danbury, um, and some of the kids who were at Sandy Hook, some of the elementary school kids who were at Sandy Hook on the day were in that school assigned to the school that I was I was guarding, pretty much. Um, just the, the sheer look on their face when they walked into school after that massacre, it was, it was baffling to me. Um, it still is very emotional to this day. Um, but what I wanted to say, I, I'm a very pro 2A guy. Um, my father's best friend lost his daughter in Sandy Hook. Sorry, I'm getting emotional. <laughs> um, my father's best friend lost his daughter in Sandy Hook, and he, he's a very pro 2A guy. We both own guns. We carry guns to protect our family. My main point would be what has this world come to that we have to arm people in our school? Like when I was a kid going to school in the 80s and 90s, going to school was supposed to be fun. And it it wasn't supposed to be about we have to have an armed guard in our school just to to look after the the safety of our children. And it's just it's scary to me. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the, the hypocrisy also on the left is insanity to me, like the hypocrisy of oh, let's ban all these guns because they kill children, but they're, they're, they're supporting killing children every day in Planned Parenthood. It, it just it doesn't make any sense to me. So uh, It's troubling, Nate. I agree. And look, I feel the same way about uh, in terms of how, how has it come to this point. 
you know, about terrorism. I mean, the fact that we've all gotten used to this ridiculous showing up at the airport and getting patted down and all this stuff. I mean, it doesn't have to be that way, right? There are all, it's only that way because some people make it that way. And now that's true, unfortunately, for, for schools and school safety, too. Thank you, Nate, for sharing your story and your perspective. I appreciate it. Uh, by the way, in, in case you... Uh, in case you were wondering, the gosh, they've released the tip, the mo- the the tip that the FBI got about Nicholas Cruz. I mean, this is this is pages, pages long. This is a verbatim transcription of uh, the tip that was shared with the FBI. Um. I'm going, to sh- I'm going to share some of this with you. This is, I've got it right in front of me right now. The operator says, thank you for calling the FBI. Can I get your name, please? Yeah, my name is blank. Thank you. Can I get your telephone number? Sure. Thank you. How can I help you today? Okay. I guess I was talking to the operator and tre- she transferred me. Like I said to her, I don't know how to go about this, but on the Instagram account, I have, I wouldn't say he's by blood, but I would consider him, I'm assuming she's in family here. He's only 18, but he's got the mental capacity of a 12 to 14-year-old. His mother just passed away on the 1st of November. He's got Instagram accounts. He started off saying he wanted to kill himself. So what I did was I called Parkland, which is where he lives, the Parkland Police Department, and I spoke to an officer there, name redacted. I didn't hear anything, you know. I left it. I gave him all the information I had. And then just recently... Now he has switched it to he wants to kill people, meaning Cruz. And then he put that on his Instagram, and two days later he took it off. If you go to on his Instagram page, you see all the guns. He's, he's so into ISIS, and uh, I'm afraid he's going to do something. Something's going to happen. Because he, he doesn't have the mental capacity. He can't. He's so outraged if someone talks to him about certain things. And he pulled a rifle on his mother before she passed away because she wanted to get Uh, money to somebody not clear and the whole another problem is that he's 18 his mother's life insurance is coming he's going to receive $25,000 from that $25,000 every year after that up until 30 so from a wrong anyways more details more details about that um and he took the money out the social security money out he took it and bought all these rifles and ammunition and he posted pictures of them on Instagram. And the family that, you know, distant cousin and myself were very concerned about this because I just wanted someone to know about this so they can look into it. If they think it's something worth going into, fine. If not, um, I just want to have a clear conscience if he takes off and just starts shooting places up. I... I was going to say, could it be any more obvious if the, if he if this woman drew the FBI a map? The answer is no, actually. She basically did. Every detail, every concern, everything in this. FBI did nothing. I, I, you'll notice you're not hearing a lot of see something, say something from the authorities these days. You know, that that refrain, that that warm, comfortable refrain that we've heard so many times. I see posters for it here in New York City on the subway. See something, say something. She didn't just say something. 
She gave them chapter and verse of this guy is going to be a mass shooter. Please, please do something about it. Here are the names, the details, the backstory, all of which you could verify, all of which you could look into, all of which you could use for any necessary due process and nothing. My friends, if if this gets no action, then there's no reason to believe that prior to this, any other FBI tip line, school shooting tip off would have gotten any action. Th- this could not have been more clear. I, I, oh, what are we supposed to make of this? They missed this? What are they spending their time doing? I, I'm really asking the question. No one followed up on this? What could be more important than this? I understand limited resources, caseload, all the... Who, who saw this transcript in FBI FBI field office and was like, you know what? We got we to look into, you know, got to look into that insurance fraud case. Got to close that one up. How could this happen? I mean, I just read you the transcript. This, this is more than enough information that they should at least have... They didn't even look into it. Imagine what they would have found out if they had called the the police department where this guy lives, where Nicholas Cruz lived, and said, hey, do you guys know anything about this? They would have been like, do we know about it? We practically live at this guy's house. I mean, we always talk about how you, you can't just, you know, you can't have 24-hour surveillance. It's too it's too resource intensive. Uh, with this guy, that actually might have been worth, that, that might have actually happened if they had looked into it. Even without a criminal predicate to arrest him, even without a, a, a probable cause, they might have been, you know, hey, we, we got to just keep an eye on him. He's a threat. 17 lives lost. We got this, you know, we got a very, very big FBI, a lot of, lot of power, a lot of authority, better technology than ever before for law enforcement in general. Um. This is, I mean, this is starting to look like, you know, the the most egregious law enforcement blunder of, of my in my lifetime. I mean, you know, nine eleven was an intelligence failure. Th- this is a law enforcement failure. But I mean, come on, guys. Uh, Kent, Greensboro, North Carolina. What do you think, Kent? Well, Buck, uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, basically, what I'd like to say is we'll just say you give the left and the right what they want. And, you know, we ban AR-15s. No one can buy an AR-15. And, you know, we get a, we get a team of Navy SEALs at every single school in the country, right? You could lock that place down. Every single school in the country it could be a fortress. And there's going to be some crazy person who just instead walks into Walmart and starts killing people. And, and this entire conversation is just the left and the right bickering back and forth over nonsense, essentially, when really what we need to be talking about is, is the real cultural problem where we have young men wanting to go and kill their peers for, for no apparent reason. 
And, and, and no one seems to want to talk about that because if we were to begin that conversation, that's going to enter into a really, really big, long talk about many problems that this country has culturally. I mean, it's just, it's just a bunch of confused young men full of hatred with really bad family situations or whatever the case is, getting picked on and bullied, and they go and kill people. No one wants to talk about that. Everyone wants to bicker about what guns we should ban and how many security guards we need in a school. And that's just, it's just silly because they're just going to do it somewhere else. Well, I would even say, Kent, and, and uh, this I think is unpopular for some people, even on my own side of the political fence to hear, but uh, we, we, there, were, there were officers, the officers were there, officers were all over the, I mean, you know, didn't stop this guy. Right. Some, somebody with, somebody with an AR who wants to just shoot random people and knows the layout of the building and kind of knows the rhythm of when people will be in different places, he's going to get in there and he's going to kill a bunch of people. I, I, I don't care. You, you could have had a SWAT team on the premises. This guy would have been able to kill a number of people before they got. Now, I think the SWAT team would have been able to respond. They might have been able to save some lives. So if you want to talk mitigation, fine. But they wouldn't have stopped it. No way. Right. And, and even if we do have no more AR-15s, we may wave a magic wand and there are no more AR-15s in existence. You know, a bolt-action rifle, you know, people have done some serious stuff. I mean, you look at uh, that one famous shooting, the D.C. shooting back in the day. I can't remember how long ago it was. What, the D.C. But, sniper? Uh, the guy, yeah, the D.C. sniper. I think he actually you know, had an AR, but yeah. Oh, uh, well, well, you same thing could have been done with a bolt-action rifle yeah. is ultimately my point. Just yeah. going around and shooting one shot and killing someone. I mean... You know, you pull a fire. Yeah, well, well, I was going to say, if you get a, a, a pretty, it's pretty standard to have uh, a lot. Of, a lot of pistols have ten round magazine capacity, fifteen round, seventeen round magazine. I mean, that's pl- that's all you need, right? I mean, you get a couple of those. Ken, I, I appreciate I pre- appreciate your call. He had a Bush. Yeah, it's an AR. Yeah, Bushmaster is the manufacturer of the AR. Producer Mike just just confirmed it. Yeah, he had a Bushmaster. Colt and Bushmaster are the two. Colt's a little more expensive, a little higher end, uh, but those are two of the big manufacturers of AR-15. Uh, all right, we're going to run into a break, team. We'll be right back. Team, welcome back. It's it, This story keeps just getting worse and worse about the chances that law enforcement had to prevent the shooting in Florida, the actions of some law enforcement. Look, I know there there were first responders. There were, there were cops who arrived at the scene who went right in there without a moment's hesitation. They should be commended. I know there was heroism during the shooting from everyday uh, citizens, including fellow students and that football coach. I mean, I'm not just trying to focus on the negative here, but the negative has been held back from us, you see. The the negative, they they wanted to release that on a, on a different timetable. We, we heard about some of the heroes in the first few days, as we should have, and we've learned more about them since. But this is, uh, this is one of those situations where now all of a sudden we're getting more and more information. I mean, I, I read to you, what would be the step after what what I just shared with you, which was on an official FBI tip line, what would be the step beyond that to get the FBI to actually do something to try and stop Nicholas Cruz from being a mass shooter in a school? Take out a billboard on a highway? Uh, you know, ad campaign? Well, what's what's the next what's the next stage? What's the next step? I would just wonder. Um, all right, you've a lot of a lot of folks here. A lot of folks here want to get uh, in on the discussion. I understand. I appreciate it. Uh, let's take Ryan in Colorado. Hey, Ryan. Hey, what's shaking, Buck? Not much. Thanks for your call. Long time no talk. Good to have you what's back. Big time. 
I called into the show uh, when you were in a different time slot quite a few times, and it was my first chance. And unfortunately, I wish we were under happier circumstances. Uh, I guess my point to get straight to it is when we were talking over dinner last night, as this is a topic for Imagine Every Household, we were just talking about how if we had intentionally rigged the system to fail our children and those teachers, we could not have done this good of a job. And that that was is just... Yeah, this is fa- this is failure at at every level, at every stage, in the most blatant way imaginable. I think that's fair to say. Yes. This, this is not just this is not just a failure of the system. This is systemic failure, top to bottom. Yes. Yeah. That's what we were talking about, and I just figured I'd throw it out there that uh, you know the truth is stranger than fiction, sort of deal, and. Well, Ryan, I appreciate, I appreciate you calling in. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on this. Uh, Robert in Gulfport, Mississippi. Robert, thank you for your patience. What's up? Hello, Buck. Thank you so much for taking the call. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. So I, I am all over the place on my emotions right now, but I want to focus on something you played a couple of breaks ago when the president was talking about the failure of one man armed with a gun and what he didn't do. you got 40 seconds, and, Robert. Uh, Go ahead. And uh, can you hear me? 40 seconds, Robert. Yeah. Okay. Well, basically, the reporter shouted back that, you know, you want to arm a teacher because the, the, the comparison being a teacher with a gun wouldn't do anything like the police officer did. No, it comes down to your moral compass. We heard the stories of the, of, the, of, the, of the teacher shielding students, a junior ROTC student shielding students. If you have the moral compass, you'll do what needs to be done. The police officer had it maybe at one point, but he didn't have it that day. He failed. He is a coward. Millions of us have moral compass to do what we need to do when the time comes. If you have it, you will act. All right, Robert. Thank you. Team, more coming up. We will require all individuals purchasing firearms to be 21 or older. Let me repeat. We will require all individuals purchasing firearms to be 21 or older. There will be exceptions for active duty and reserve military and spouses, National Guard members, and law enforcement. There you have Governor Rick Scott of Florida taking some gun control action. This this is happening, folks. Uh, welcome to Hour 2 of the Buck Sexton Show. Thank you very much for being here. Uh, you are seeing some changes happen. I, I don't see how requiring individuals to be 21 or older is going to stop, particularly the mass shootings, including school shootings, with people that are above that age. But this is how the restriction... This is how the restriction mentality works. You know, if, if you could stop just one, if you could stop just one shooting, then you should do this. Now, I would say that logic also then would apply to people who are concealed carry permit holders on school grounds, right? Because they always say, well, you, you wouldn't have stopped the, or you wouldn't necessarily stop a shooting. And that's true. You wouldn't necessarily stop a shooting just because there were armed personnel or, or concealed carry uh, civilians on a campus or in a school. But you'd have a chance. And it could stop just one. And the downside to the program I'm talking about is pretty minimal, right? But messing with a constitutionally protected right and changing laws that already are... There's a lot of laws about gun ownership. There's a lot of stuff that is already regulated about firearms. But Governor Scott um, decided that they're going to make people... They'd give it 21 or older. Okay, I wonder what's going to happen in some other states. There is change happening right here. 
Then there's also the uh, the media back and forth on all this, the the war between the left and right as it plays out on the TV screens and over the airwaves on our computer screens and such. Uh, you've got CNN. I, I, I almost had to, I had to read this a couple of times to really grasp that this is, this was in fact what they meant to write. President Trump, this is a CNN, CNN tweet, everyone. President Trump describes someone who would shoot up a school as a, quote, savage sicko. NRA spokeswoman Dana Lash called the Florida gunman, quote, an insane monster, nuts and crazy. This kind of language about mental health could be harmful, experts say. <sighs> CNN. CNN, has, has, they have lost it. There's something, something's going on over there. I don't know. I don't know. Well, I do know who's in charge, actually, but they are. It's like they're operating on other planets sometimes. Uh, they're, wor- they're worried about the mean words that people are using to describe the mass murder of the uh, Marjorie Douglas high school shooting. You, you just you can't make this stuff up. And uh, speaking of Dana, my former colleague at The Blaze, Dana Lash, worked with her for, uh, for years. She was speaking to uh, Allison Camerata, over of C- over at CNN, uh, I want to place on this exchange. It's a little lengthy, but he- it's worth hearing some of it. Emotions are high, and it's yeah. it's awful. I mean, it's not even barely been a week ago. Uh-huh, but but let- I really want to have that discussion yes, as so to I. what we can do to stop this of in course. the future. That's why we had the town hall. So listen, that's why we had lawmakers there, so that the kids could pose questions directly to them. But, Dana, it's just... It's just malicious, actually, that you would say that. I don't know anybody in the media who likes mass shootings. You're wrong on every single level. We pray that there's never another one. And the idea of them being I, ratings I gold. Hold do. on, Dana. But let Allison, me answer I this. Have I have to. Here. You just made a malicious statement, and I have to respond. Guess what? They're not ratings gold because Americans have reached saturation level. They're so sick of it. It's so heartbreaking that they actually often turn away and we still have the conversation though, trying to find you're saying solutions. that though it's malicious it but is. Let, you, you're saying that it's malicious but yet on your network you've allowed accusations against me and millions of law-abiding americans as and to be indicted as child murderers i've watched you allison we've never on your said program that, Dana. at this very time slot we've and you've never you've said allowed that, that you were to stand a child uncorrected murderer. on your Listen, network you you've allowed use it to all stand of this uncorrected on your language. network that's if you not true have a discussion Dana. of maliciousness it's not true but i don't want to get we've here never allison, called you a child murderer it is true we have your to be fact-based. Coverage. No, you've allowed the accusations to stand, Allison. Please follow what I'm saying. You allowed the accusations you. to stand. I don't All right, believe you. Pause it one second here. Pause it. Pause it. Oh yeah, they have. They've allowed that to stand. Child murderers. I, I I've heard that. Not that CNN anchors say it, but they let it be said. And this is one of the ways that these news organizations play games, because. If they don't like something, the anchor will interrupt. Oh, you shouldn't say that, or you know that's unacceptable to say on our air, or you know they'll do that all the time. You want to call the NRA, you know, murderers, child killers? CNN's got no problem with that. Look, Jake Tapper was moderating that event, and you you heard what was said there. I think he was overwhelmed with all of the viciousness and maliciousness around him towards Dana and towards the NRA. But nonetheless, let's let's not let them pretend like they are unaware of the kind of stuff that is said on their air. I would note that there are also, I was talking about effects of all this. 
You got Governor Scott moving up the age to 21 for Florida, or that's that's the plan for uh, for Florida. Um, you also have the end of discount programs that involve the NRA. So MetLife, Hertz, Enterprise, First National Bank of Omaha, whole bunch of different corporate entities. They're not boycotting or something. They're just ending a discount relationship they have with the NRA. But they're taking corporate action. They are giving into the pressure and they are shaming the NRA, which had nothing to do with this shooting. I wonder how long it will take for them to realize that not only are they antagonizing the 5 million members of the NRA, but the tens of millions of gun owners across America may see this and realize that this is also a slap at them, that this is part of the culture war right now, that gun ownership, as I've been saying, is politically a tribal issue. It is an us versus them issue. And if you are a gun owner, even if you've never done a thing wrong in your life, even if you are a wonderful and valiant and law-abiding and trustworthy human being, you're part of the problem, you see, because you own a gun. That's that's what the left really thinks, and that's why you have this corporate action that has been taken here uh, by these companies. I wonder if there will be a, a backlash to the backlash. Uh, the correction may come quickly, although we'll see. They must have they must have done some kind of an, uh, an assessment here and decided that it was worth it. It was worth it to go after the NRA. I, I saw somebody who wrote uh, yesterday that it, with all of what's gone on here, with the failures of the FBI, failures of local law enforcement, failure in, in Broward County, uh, the failures of the deputies on the scene, with, with all of that, failures of the, you know, authorities at the school and, and local to figure out what's going on here. And then on top of everything else, the worst part of all of it, the shooter himself, with all of the different culpability out there, the media has shown more outrage and more venom toward the NRA than anything else. They even sometimes seem like they, they feel sorry for the shooter. They condemn it. Don't make don't don't misunderstand me. But they you know, they can they feel badly that the shooter was such a you know uh, troubled and forgotten and slipped through the cracks young man. Uh, but the NRA is just evil, they think. That's where they really are on all this. It's amazing. And it's uh, it's disgraceful that that's what's been going on. Uh, all right, we've got lots of lots, every line lit. So let's get into some calls here. Chad in North Carolina. What's going on, Chad? Yes, sir. Uh, nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. Um, I was going to bring up a point I haven't heard quite yet. Uh, I'm a law enforcement officer from North Carolina. And uh, since Ferguson, we really haven't haven't had the quality of applicants come in ever since. Uh, just an example, like our BLET programs, the uh, most of the time they have to have a certain number of people to to uh, just run the class. If they don't have a certain number of people, they uh, they're not able to provide the class. If that makes sense. So they're just putting people in the class that they know are going to fail. 
and we're getting you know some of the candidates. So, so you, you know, think that like, the Ferguson effect from the Obama, you know, during the time of the Obama administration, which was a documented thing where there was surges in violence in some places, and also law enforcement was less trusted, that that also has resulted in fewer high quality applicants in some jurisdictions for law enforcement jobs because they feel like they've been that they were named and shamed by the former president and administration. Yes, sir. And and even like this one, this officer that uh, that didn't respond or wouldn't go in, we're also having to keep officers like that longer because we need bodies in a spot. Hmm. All right. Well, that's, uh, it's disconcerting. But, Chad, I appreciate your perspective. I know you're in law enforcement. Thank you for what you do, and thank you for calling in. Joe, calling in from Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Hey, Joe. How you doing, Buck, tonight? Um, just so you know, I don't have Internet access, so I don't know what you're talking in real time, and I only know what you're talking about, you know, listening to the program and things of that nature. But I was going to comment on the individual that quite literally the sheriff, uh, I think it is, of what Broward County sacrificed because of his – lack of basically following through what he was mandated to do. So you're talking about the sheriff's campaign. deputy that waited outside. You know that there are now four deputies who waited outside, right? Which is new things. But the, here, here's the point that I'm trying to make. If my, my background is special operations, and I'm an older individual past the years, but the thing is is that with whether it was domestic terrorism or international terrorism, the think tanks, the powers that be, said, look at who is going to handle these situations on American soil? And the local or basically the police powers of the United States were the winners. In other words, being the military, I don't know how long or how your institution memory, memory is that the Charlie teams of special forces were the hurt teams back in the day. In other words, they were expected to do hostage rescue overseas, and there, I mean, the rules of engagement even then were totally different. That would have happened on American soil. I was one of the people that basically said, okay, we have to train up the police departments to handle this because this is outside of our jurisdiction. Now, going forward from that, the individuals now, instead of just a single individual, you're basically, um, since the none of the the, the um, deputies or whoever were the law enforcement people who were the first responders were on the scene to basically greet the guy at the door when he's shooting people in the parking lot, they have to come from another area, and I don't know where they were because I wasn't there. But nevertheless, as you come onto the scene of an active duty shooting, you have to find, fix, and fight the threat. Right. So, you know, as far as the response teams coming on scene, you have to first fix what's going on. Say the first responder there is basically he sees two people laying in the street. He has to assess, do I need to get these people aid and basically communicate? So, wait, with so Joe, I, I, don't, I don't mean to interrupt you, and I, and I, I gotcha. respect your service and your opinion here, sir, but you're, are, you, are you taking the position that the four guys who were all armed and, and at the school building who did not go into the building were operating under standard procedure? Operating procedure. In other words, you cordon the area because what did the but, individual but, there, but you know that law enforcement, and, and again, respectfully, you've said that you used to do this stuff a long time ago, but law enforcement after what happened at the Columbine shooting in 99, it was a, it was a, right. a national 
uh, convulsion away from cordon and wait to go in with an active shooter because lives are being lost. I understand that, but the thing is this, the first and premise of being a first responder to such a situation, you do no any, you do not do anybody any good if you're dead or wounded and you're not functional. And I understand what you said, and it's a true statement. But nevertheless, as if you are a first responder, you have to be alive and in one piece and to do anybody good. And secondly, you're talking about... Yeah, but I mean, so at, at what point then, if you're the first responder on a scene, do you expose yourself to danger and, and try to save lives? Because you're, you could always okay. be worried that, you know, you could always be worried well, let's, that... Let's, okay, go do what you're talking about and address what you're talking about. We're talking about a timeline. You're talking about a person who, you know, just reading the news accounts, because again, I wasn't there. Yeah, I understand. So a deputy arrived, he's there. A deputy's there. He's got a gun in his hands. He's at a school. Right. There's no one else with a gun nearby. Actually, there. I'm sorry, four deputies there. We don't know what order they arrived in. They're right. there. The gun's going off. Bang, right. bang, bang. People are getting killed inside. Right. They know that. They're sitting there. They're waiting. That's exactly right. What, so okay. they've established a cordon for inside, what? Are you, in, are you inside the building to know where that person exactly is? Because he No, you, but you're only going to know if you go inside the building. I don't understand what... what I mean, they're not... They, they can't sit around and wait for them to call in drones or something. I mean, they're going to have to go in to find no, out. He's, he's communicating uh, radio. And what if the tactical commander says coordinate and hold well, tight? Right, Joe, I, I, I've kept you as long as I can. I appreciate you calling in. I wish we could continue, but we're going to run into a, a station break, so I can't, I can't go. But I've just, at, at some point, well, then there's just no point in having armed guards or armed personnel on a campus at all because they're going to sit around and just talk on the radios a lot. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes, everyone. Stay with me. By the way, what a nice picture that is. Look at that. I'd love to watch that guy speak. Oh, God. That's all. I try like hell to hide that ball spot, folks. I work harder. Doesn't look bad. Hey, we're hanging in. We're hanging in. We're hanging in there, right? Together, we're hanging in. I thought I thought we could all use a, a lighter moment, and that one came courtesy of, of President Trump today speaking at uh, CPAC and just having a, having a little fun himself. You know, it's always endearing for the commander-in-chief to be a little self-deprecating, have some some jokes that uh, show that he doesn't take himself too seriously. I also had to remark on the president, when he is in his zone, uh, it, it goes beyond being effective oratory for the purposes of politics. He's actually really just good TV. He's just very watchable, which for politicians is not the case. And you, know, you saw the day if you had a ch- oh, you probably didn't. I saw it because I was at Fox then commenting on it. But the uh, conference between the prime minister of Australia and President Trump, that guy, uh, Turnbull, he's very—he's exactly what you, you know, he's very polished and gives very politically astute answers and everything else. And you just realize that we've gotten so used to that, that when we have somebody who just kind of lets it rip and goes off script, it's it's a revelation. It just feels like it can't be... It can't be real. But he spoke at some other uh, spoke at some other important policy matters during the course of his CPAC speech. He, I, I liked his comments about the hair. It's how he started it out. The speech went on for like an hour and 15 minutes. Oh, long, long speech. This president has a lot of verbal stamina. Uh, but here's what he said about what's going on with immigration and customs enforcement, which is going to be a bigger issue going forward. In 2017... 
Our brave ICE officers arrested more than 100,000 criminal aliens who have committed tens of thousands of crimes. And, and believe me, these are great people. They cannot, they, the laws are just against us. They're against, they're against safety. They don't make sense. And you meet with Democrats and they're always fighting for the criminal. They're not fighting for law-abiding citizens. They're always fighting for the criminal. Uh, we're going to get back to this immigration uh, immigration debate. It is going going to happen. That is uh, going to be. And then here, let's play just a little bit on Iran before we have to run to our break. Uh, Fifteen. Go. Terrible one-sided Iran nuclear deal. That was a horrible deal. <laughs> Whoever heard you give a hundred and fifty billion dollars to a nation that has no respect for you whatsoever? They're saying death to America while they're signing the agreement. If somebody said death to America while I'm signing an agreement and I'm president, I immediately say, what's going on here, folks? I'm not signing. What's going on? They just kept going. Kerry. Kerry may be the worst negotiator I've ever seen. <laughs> That's a lot. All right. That's a lot I want to get to. Kerry, between his hair comment and the Kerry comment, Trump crushed it today at CPAC. It was great. We'll be back in a minute. So for all those in the media who think I should have stood and cheered with the North Koreans, I say... The United States of America doesn't stand with murderous dictatorships. We stand up to murderous dictatorships. And we will keep standing strong until North Korea stops threatening our country, our allies, or until they abandon their nuclear and ballistic missiles once and for all. Today, the Treasury Department is announcing the largest set of sanctions ever imposed in connection with North Korea. This action targets the deceptive shipping practices that have enabled the Kim regime to fund its dangerous weapons programs. Our actions target shipping and trade companies, vessels, and individuals across the world who we know are working with North Korea's behalf. Specifically, we are sanctioning 27 entities, 28 vessels, and one individual, all involved in sanctions evasion schemes. Tightening the screws against North Korea. That is the administration's policy right now. They will not back off. They will not turn their attention away from the growing menace of an increasingly capable nuclear-armed North Korea. They already have nukes. They already have uh, missile a missile program that is pretty advanced. But as it gets more and more advanced, it becomes a bigger threat. This is also a part of this discussion that I think uh, needs greater focus. It's not just that they would be able to send a nuke, let's say, on an ICBM to try to hit D.C. or L.A. or New York or wherever, Honolulu, it's that as they get better and get more of these, the threat could be that they could fire 20 ICBMs at some point all at once at Tokyo, Los Angeles, Honolulu, who knows where else, right? And now your defense systems would be even more stretched and you get into... You know, what could we do to try to knock the, you know, to knock the missiles out of the sky? That's why the longer you wait, the worse the problem gets. 
It's not like there's a finish line North Korea crosses and we're like, well, you know, now they've got nuclear ICBMs, so I guess we're just going to be friends. That's not how this happens. This is just going to get worse, and the administration knows it, and I credit them with understanding much more so than their predecessor administration, the Obama administration, what the nature of this North Korean regime is when it comes to negotiations and how it tries to play the international community. They try to play, the North Koreans try to play for time. They try to manipulate international perception. Oh, sure, we're willing to, we're willing to moderate if you just take the pressure off a bit. Remember what Obama did with Iran? Iran was having a terrible time with its economy. It's, uh, it was dealing with all kinds of you know, inflationary pressure on its currency, and its foreign currency reserves were dwindling, and it was economic stagnation. And then Obama came along and gave them an economic lifeline without them dismantling and destroying their nuclear program, right? If, if President Obama had had time, he would have done the same thing with North Korea, would have thrown them a, a lifeline, an economic lifeline, too. And, and I mean for the regime, not for the people. Uh, but what they've seen is that the sanctions evasion schemes of the North Korean government are complicated. They are complex. And now they're trying to track that down. You know, it's, it's fascinating. You have all these ships that will do a ship-to-ship transfer, for example. So a ship that is supposed to go from, uh, from I don't know, to Tokyo to Singapore, well, a, a ship that's supposed to go from Japan to Singapore, let's say, right? It all of a sudden could find itself. And now they, they haven't, Japanese ships haven't been involved in this. Chinese ships have. Uh, so let's just change my analogy. A Chinese ship could be on its way to Singapore. And, oh, wait a second. All of a sudden it finds itself doing a cargo exchange at sea with a, with a North Korean vessel and getting prohibited cargo that way, right? That's a ship-to-ship transfer. So anyone who does that, we are cracking down on them. So specific vessels, these massive cargo vessels, they have something called flags of convenience, which is a very interesting, really a historical anachronism that that continues to this day. The way it works is that ships have to be under maritime law. They have to have a, a country that they are registered in. And guess what? For a lot of these transcontinental shipping concerns, you want to make sure that you're registered in a, in a country that has no taxes. That's why the biggest, uh, the biggest shipping powers in the world, based on registration, not on actual shipping muscle, so so to speak, uh, would be Panama. Uh, Panama is very very big. The Marshall Islands, a lot of ships that are Marshall Islands ships, but really they're not. They just register there. It's because they have uh, no taxes, and also they don't have to worry as much about. A regulatory oversight and this stretches back to a, a, a long ways it has to do actually with u.s laws and well that's a discussion for another time but so you have ships that are let's say marshall islands flagged or any number of these smaller a lot of them are uh, the bahamas and uh, small caribbean nations will be flag of convenience for these major shipping outfits so they're they're picking them off one by one and saying, okay, well, this ship or this entity is now, you know, you're now sanctioned. You know, you're now getting punished for doing any uh, anything to help North Korea, and that's that's where we are now. So they're trying to further 
limit particularly imports of oil to North Korea because without oil, it slows down their missile program. It slows down the military machinery. Right. And it's not a we're not cutting off all the food, but we're cutting off oil and also their coal exports, because that's the way that North Korea tries to get foreign currency. Now, there's other stuff they do, cyber hacking, cyber theft and black market activities of all kinds. This is an ongoing an ongoing concern, an ongoing battle to try and really cut North Korea off economically. And I would just note that in the case of, uh, you know, with the in the aftermath of the Olympics, the Winter Olympics, which I know I've been a bit critical of here in the hut, but I think that's understandable under the circumstances. Uh, I'm just not a Winter Olympics guy. But they use this as a charm offensive, and I think that we can see a reversion very soon here. We will see a reversion with the North Koreans going back to the way they were before, which is, you know, firing off missiles, being defiant. Because ultimately, the problem we have with their missile and nuclear program is that it is a non-negotiable for the North Korean regime, and we are trying to make, we are trying to negotiate over it. (laughs) They have no interest in negotiating over it, and they view it as existential. Right. So if I were trying to negotiate with somebody and they said, well, the first thing is that that's not something we can negotiate on, I would think it's a tough go. And that's what we're dealing with in North Korea. So we'll see. And Trump made a statement today that this is just this issue is just going to get even more tense going forward. We'll keep watching it. And uh, team will be back in just a minute here. Hey, I've got a follow up from earlier in the week that I meant to get to something that was left, if you will, on the uh, on the cutting room floor. You'll recall there was that uh, there was that guy who was VP of advertising at Facebook. And he was the one I, I read his I read what he said on air. He was the one that pointed out that most of the buying of ads with regard to the Russia collusion stuff and all that, uh, most of the buying of ads occurred after the election that the pro-Trump component of those bots, of that social media campaign, the, the pro-Trump components were only a portion of it, and that it wasn't even the main effort. It wasn't even the main goal of all of that, that social media propaganda. He got taken to the woodshed right away. And I will give credit to Matt Taibbi, who is a journalist over at Rolling Stone, who was willing to at least point to this and say, you know, what's with the no, the no willingness to hear any facts on this Russia collusion narrative that conflict? And this is from journalists, He's talking to his fellow journalists that conflict with what their preferred outcome is. Explain to me how it is that the VP of ads for Facebook has to come out and apologize. Here's what he wrote, quote, I wanted to apologize for having tweeted my own view about Russian interference without having it reviewed by anyone internally. The tweets were my own personal view and not Facebook's. I conveyed my view poorly. No, he didn't. He just upset the Russia collusion mafia. That's all. That's what happened. It's not that he didn't express himself well or there was some problem internally with his lack of clearing at first or anything. No, no, no. That's not what happened. So where are we now? We're in a place where and and journalists are all, by the way, they're all fine with this. Like, yeah, yeah. 
doesn't seem weird at all that this guy who is in charge of Facebook ad buying just shares some information about the Facebook ad buying. Then he says some journalists left off and they don't realize that this is just because he was immediately disciplined by the left. You see, the, the way you're supposed to refer to this stuff is like how Facebook co-founder Chris Hughes talks about it. I think Facebook is and are going to come to Jesus moment. It's a place where hundreds of millions of Americans go to debate the issues of the day, to find people that they agree with, occasionally disagree with, and it's a place where foreign powers can go to uh, meddle in our elections. And so I think Facebook failed to protect uh, uh, our elections last year. That's what you have to say. Facebook failed to protect our elections. That guy was the co-founder of, of Facebook, by the way. He's also, I've, I heard him speak once at a, at a kind of a s- small event when he bought the New Republic uh, and proceeded to run it into the ground even further. I mean, it had been slowly, it was like a slow train wreck, and he you know, threw it up a few notches, made it go a little faster. A completely cratered the whole thing. And the New Republic, which is a far, very old, far left wing, basically a socialist propaganda magazine in this country. Also the place where if you've seen the movie Shattered Glass, the guy who was the fabricator. Yeah, he was a writer for the New Republic. So just making up stories. I, I've always said this, my contention and people actually people mostly agree with me. Or listen to me. They, they hear me out on this. In the pre-Internet era, journalists were lying all the time. Journalists were lying all the I'm not saying everyone, but I'm saying that there was a constant lying about sources. A lot of people were getting just the just the perfect quote, you know? A lot of lot of people were just happened to be standing there watching after the you know, after the house had burned down and they just knew something from the memoirs of, you know, Ulysses Grant, right at the perfect moment. I'm just I'm a little skeptical about how that stuff all happened. Before, because look at the guy from the New Republic. They barely figured that out. He was he was completely fabricating stories. Anyway, Chris Hughes bought Facebook. I mean, not not bought. He was a co-founder of Facebook. He was lucky. He lived in Mark Zuckerberg's dorm, and was one of the people that was there early on uh, with the, the whole Facebook phenomenon, and then bought the New Republic and did a very bad job with it. But he he knows you've got to take the party line here, and it is the party line, the Democrat party line. The other Facebook exec who is still there, who knows very much what was going on and what this was all about, he has to come out and apologize for telling the truth. And this got very little coverage this week. And Taibbi over at Rolling Stone was like, so this is where we are now. The journalists just say, yeah, we'll take a retraction from a guy who knows exactly what he's talking about and is just clearly being he's being disciplined for being off message on Russia collusion. That's all it is. And if that can happen to somebody who's a senior VP at Facebook, it can happen to somebody who works at any, at any of those social media, uh, social media platforms that, as we know, have a tremendous, tremendous amount of influence on our perception, on the news cycle, on all of it. Tremendous. I thought this was just noteworthy that that guy who tried to just put a little more a little more context around the whole Russia meddling thing, the guy who 
knows exactly what he's talking about. Sure enough, he had to he had to walk it back just because this tells you a lot. And this and, and that that journalists are completely uncritical of the whole process. They are all so invested in this Russia collusion thing that also shows you that we're going to have to do everything we can to get the truth out ourselves. And these social media platforms are a problem. This is the new they're the new mainstream media. Social media is the new mainstream media. They are left wing. They are politicized. They are very powerful and influential. They hold the power of life and death over individuals' careers, uh, over entire news entities. And they have, like I said, a a lot of of influence. And you keep seeing these stories popping up, too. YouTube won't take content that is tied to the NRA because, oh, it, it violates their terms of service. And everyone says, oh, my gosh. And, but they sometimes fail to realize YouTube's, YouTube's a private company. If YouTube decides that it is going to ban all conservatives from its platform, guess what? That's the way it is. And I don't think we're too far off from figuring out that these, quote, algorithms that Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, I don't, Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, right? I think so, yeah. Think about that. You want to talk about monopoly power. One other thing, you know, the I thought this was amazing. Uh, gosh, I can't remember which one. It was one of the Kardashians. One of the Kardashians put out a tweet. This was amazing. Put out a tweet about Snapchat, which I've always thought was just a, a crappy platform. I tried to use it a couple of times. And I'm like, this is just... And also the whole thing, yeah, exactly. Thank you, producer Mike. Thumbs down. I don't really want to give myself a dog face like, like it's not. That doesn't make me look cool. I'm not distinguished. I'm not going to get a date because I have a, a goofy face superimposed over mine, and people are like, I like it when my voice gets all high. And then, you know, no, no. This was a thing that was amusing for teenage girls for like a month. I think even they've moved on past it. Anyway, one of the Kardashians, Kylie Jenner, that's right, Kylie Jenner, with one with one posting on uh was it one posting on Instagram. I'm sorry, in one tweet, in one tweet, she wiped out 1.3 billion dollars, 1.3 billion with a B of Snapchat value. It's another thing to keep in mind. I mean, this is a sign of the end times, my friend. When the Kardashian that you haven't even heard of is able to bring billions of dollars to or from a company on a whim, America's go- we're in trouble. I mean, we're going to be all right with Trump, but they're going to, you know, the next round of Sandernistas is going to take over and the Kardashian. We're going to have a Kardashian president in like 10 years. All dogs and cats living together in mass hysteria. All right, we got Sarah Carter coming up here in a second. I, I've uh, got to get to her. She's got actual reporting and and insights to bring into our conversation. So I think that would be particularly useful right now. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. We are about to get into hour three. Um, I'm running out of time. I'll be right back. All right, everybody, as promised, welcome to hour three of the uh, Buck Sexton Show. We've got Sarah Carter with me right now. She is a uh, nationally known investigative journalist, does phenomenal work. She's also a Fox News contributor. You often see her on Sean Hannity's TV program. Sarah, great to have you. It's 
Great to be with you, Beck. Uh, so tell me what's going on at the White House right now. A bunch of stories. One of them is a bunch of stories this week. One of them has to do with whether or not there's going to be a, a future for McMaster, who's the national security advisor. What's going on? Well, I've been talking to sources all day about this. This is very interesting. You know, there's been a lot of tension between McMaster and President Trump. And that's been kind of a known underlaid fact for months now. But it does look like McMaster may not be there for long. Now, things can always change. The White House can always have a new decision. But it appears that McMaster may be moving out of the White House, what I've been told is that there's a possibility that he could go on maybe to a command here inside the United States or be deployed overseas and take command either in Afghanistan or another part of the world uh, in order to get his fourth star. He's a three-star general. But right now I think there's a lot of rumors, a lot of people talking. Um, The one thing I know for sure is that that is being considered right now. What would that, if that happens, Sarah, is that something that we should be concerned about for what it signals about the direction of the White House or what's is there a takeaway that you see from it in terms of the the power struggle within the White House? Well, I I think there is still a bit of a power struggle inside the White House. And a lot of this has to do with the Iran deal. I think a lot of this focus right now, especially for the president, is that he wants options. He doesn't want to continue with this deal. It's been something that he talked about even before the campaign. Now people have pushed him and said, well, this is probably going to be your best option. Let's try to continue with this deal. Let's hold their feet to the fire. Let's make sure that if Iran violates the sanctions, then we can discuss something later. But now what we know is that Iran has been violating those sanctions in certain aspects of it to a lot of experts that are focused on Iran. And there's a lot of people that say, look, Iran's not going to abide by any deal. This is just for show. Let's pull out of these sanctions now. Uh, And so I think there's been a lot of back and forth. McMaster obviously has been trying to stabilize things as far as the sanctions are concerned. Doesn't want to see a lot of shift, a lot of big change there. But there could be a lot of problems for the White House in the future, too. I mean, McMaster's been there now ever since um, Michael Flynn was removed. And they're going to have to find somebody new to fill his shoes. I have heard that Ambassador Bolton is a name that's being tossed around. But there are a few people that believe that um, General Mattis may be against that and and some others, that they may see Bolton as being too hard-lined. And they may be looking for someone a little bit more... Uh, on their path. So it'll be interesting to see if the White House does uh, accept McMaster's uh, decision to move on uh, and and who they would fill that position with, because it's such a valuable position. You got to think it's direct access to the president. And it's a very important uh, time right now, president, to have a certain sense of stability, particularly with everything that's going on in the world, North Korea, is just one of the other big issues that's haunting the president right now, as well as Afghanistan and Syria. Uh, Sarah, what can you tell us about the security clearance story with Jared Kushner? And then, the you know, this is the other struggle that's being talked about within the White House is Jer- Jared Kushner and General Kelly. And I've always thought, well, General Kelly left himself the opening to give anyone a waiver that he thinks needs a waiver. Here we are. I think we're at the Friday deadline. The mainstream media has been running with this Jared Kushner clearance story 
uh, for days. This has been one of their their favorite things to to push up in the headlines. Do we know? Is this is this a, a thing? Is this a big deal? Is there a feud going on or is this much ado about nothing? You know, I, I think that there is a bit of a struggle there. I do not see, and I, and this is from talking to sources, that General Kelly will be removed or will leave. Um, that would be General Kelly's decision. I think General Kelly is really trying to run a tight ship at the White House. Uh, he, you know, he, it's, it's been a struggle for him since he came in, and he really, according to a lot of folks, have put a lot of things in place that have made the White House a lot more organized, been able to move forward. Uh, the feud between Jared Kushner and uh, Kelly, I think, is a little bit over-exaggerated in the media, according to the people that I've spoken with. But there is that concern there. You know, I, I know there's a lot of people that are wondering why Jared Kushner only has a temporary clearance right now. Is he going to get a full security clearance? And, and you know this as well as I do, um, Buck, that it takes quite a long time, and especially with Jared's long history, business history, there might and, and yeah, international contact. business deals and international travel are going to make a clearance process quite a quite a process. Oh, yes. I mean, there are people that have waited two years for their security clearances to go through, uh, you know, because of their extensive background and because they spent so much time overseas or they were involved in business. It's not as difficult for somebody who's young and coming out of college with no foreign contacts or barely any travel to go into the government and see their security clearance go through pretty quickly. But for somebody yeah. like Jared Kushner, who does has significant business overseas and does have a lot of foreign contacts, it could be pretty difficult for, you know, for someone with all of those contacts to get that clearance quickly. Now, we don't have all of the answers as to why this is happening, but, but there is a deadline, and so I'm, I'm expecting to hear some news. Um, whether or not General Kelly or whether the president will decide to give Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, this uh, temporary security clearance and until he can get his full security clearance passed. We're speaking to Sarah Carter, who is an award-winning investigative journalist and reporter, and she's a Fox News contributor. Sarah, there was this memo that we were talking about until pretty recently, uh, not just not you and me, but I mean the country, uh, the Democrat memo, the response to the Nunez FISA abuse memo, there was some back and forth over redactions. And now it seems, well, no one's talking about it. What happened? Are, are we ever going to get to see this this 10 pager that they're supposed to put out in response to the Nunez FISA abuse memo? I think we are. Uh, it's You're right. It's been extraordinarily quiet. I know Adam Schiff says he aims to release that memo sometime this coming week. Also know that a lot of people who have viewed the memo, uh, Republicans as well as Democrats, want to see this memo come out. This is very interesting because the Democrats were so highly opposed to the Nunez memo coming out and reviewing what it did. We saw that there was no national security violations as espoused by a lot of people who the memo's release. Um, it was uh, thoroughly vetted. It was only four pages, and that was the reason why they didn't want to have anything in that 
memo that would violate any of our national security protocols or any issues to do with the Fisk Court, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. But Adam Schiff, you know, was pushing, pushing, pushing. He had this 10-page memo that they had come up with. They sent it off to the White House. And when it was reviewed by the FBI in the White House, there were enormous concerns with the memo, according to my sources. It needed to be heavily redacted, uh, mainly because it exposed sources and methods. And that's something that I... To some sources, it was purposefully done by Adam Schiff. So Adam Schiff kind of, and, and the people who put it together, according to these sources, knew that by the time they sent this to the White House, they knew the president would have to ask for a redaction, and they thought that that would make the president really look bad. Um, but remember, Senator Grassley's office released the uh, cr- uh, the Christopher Steele criminal referral and their memo eventually they released it it was it was it was highly redacted and then they they it was it was not redacted and then they redacted it later and what it exposed was an absolute approval and vindication of the Nunez memo, but even in more detail. And I think that's what's so fascinating is that a lot of people have forgotten about Senator Grassley's memo. And Grassley's memo pretty much goes right over the target. It exposed the State Department. It showed that uh, Cody Shearer, uh, Sidney Blumenthal, others were highly involved in uh, giving information back and forth and communicating with Christopher Steele. So it was way beyond what we had imagined uh, with just the first dossier. We saw a very expansive look at what was going on with the, we know with the dossier that, by Comey's words, former FBI Director Comey's words, was salacious and unverified, even though they used it to go to the Fisk Court uh, to get a warrant on Carter Page. Sarah Carter, everybody. Sarah, where can people go to read your latest Oh, go to sarahacarter.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at sarahcarterdc. All right, Sarah, have a great have a great weekend. Give the mister my regards, and we'll have you uh, back on soon. Yes, thank you so much, Buck. You too. All right, team, when we come back, I am going to talk to you about uh, a few things, including, at some point, whether it is possible to use chocolate milk as a stand-in for diversity, and whether or not, uh, well, we will get into some of the, I'm, I'm literally, I had something in mind that I was going to talk to you all about in the, in the very next segment, and for the time being, I'm kind of blanking on it. But it will come back to me. <laughs> so that happens. When you do three-hour radio show five days a week, sometimes you forget stuff, occasionally. Uh, and then we will get into some roll call, because you know I love hearing from all of you. So we will be doing some roll call coming up here in a few minutes. As well, third hour of our Freestyle Friday continues in just a few. Got to just cover the charges against uh, Manafort here for a second. Uh, Manafort has charges against him. Uh, Mueller has added a whole bunch of stuff. Thirty, A 32-count indictment. And so Manafort and uh, Rick Gates, also was an aide to the Trump campaign, Uh, They are in the vice now. They have been caught in the grip of the Mueller probe. I would just say a couple things about this. Uh, One is that (laughs) they're charging Gates with, and he's he's pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI, in this case Mueller's team, about uh, lying to the FBI about a meeting he had with a congressman 
five years ago. Uh, why he would lie about that? Now, the, the the lie, as I understand it, is actually the purpose of the meeting, which it sounds like maybe there was some discretion as to, well, the, do they agree on what the purpose of the meeting was? But they've got him on, on a lie. There are really only a few options here as they've gotten person after person on this charge of lying to the FBI. Either the people they're interviewing are dumb because they are putting themselves in felony criminal jeopardy for no reason. I don't think that's the case, but I don't know. Or because they haven't lied about things that were illegal necessarily. They've just lied about stuff. I guess there are three options. I'll throw that in there. The second option would be that they're so nervous because they have other stuff to hide that they get caught up in a lie or in trying to throw Mueller's team off the scent of more egregious crimes. This is what is happening, right? That's why they're lying. Or here's my preferred option. It is really hard to speak to trained federal investigators for hours at a time in an interrogation-like circumstance and not and not find yourself perhaps in a position where they could say that you lied. So that's something that I think is worth remembering as we go forward. Um, Mueller is, is hit. He's, he has gotten nailed with this indictment that says that they are essentially that he was understating his income, uh, that his income was much higher than he said it was. He was just lying about how much money he made so he could pay less taxes on it. Does this have anything to do with Trump? No, it does not. Nothing whatsoever to do with with Donald Trump, with Russia collusion even. This is just a guy who's doing international political consulting and lying about the source of the funds. That's it. That's all. And Mueller, I don't know. Tax, this is what was missing in the last indictment. I was saying to you at the time, we had our friend Andy McCarthy joining as well to add his legal analysis to this. I was saying that a superseding indictment to me seemed likely. It seemed very likely that there would be, because the things that they were hitting Mueller, I mean, that they were hitting Manafort on initially were pretty low level. And absent a serious tax evasion charge, it didn't look like it really had that much teeth. Um, But here we are. Mueller, Gates, they've got them. Does anyone really care? I don't know. I'll leave that to you. But if we're going to be talking about truth and the need to tell the truth and how it is so important for society to function and everything else, and in the context of the whole Russia situation as well, I just wanted to remind everyone of something else. You'll recall there was a a discussion on TV on one of the Sunday shows, I think, with the former director of national intelligence, James Clapper, about whether or not there was a FISA court order on any Trump-related official Trump or any of his people, right? There was that question had come up. Here is how on national TV, the former director of national intelligence answered it. There was no such wiretap activity mounted against uh, the president, the the president elect at the time or as a candidate or against his campaign. 
If the FBI, for instance, had a FISA court order of some sort for a surveillance, would that be information you would know or not know? Yes. You would be told this. I would know that. If there was a FISA court order on something like this. Um, Something like this, absolutely. And at this point, you can't confirm or deny whether that exists? I can deny it. There is no FISA court order? Not not to my knowledge. Of anything at Trump Tower? No. There was no FISA court order. So he was lying. Right. That, that's a lie. Now, I know he's not under oath. I know that the former director, actually, I think he might have been the director of national intelligence. Uh, no, no, I'm sorry. He, he had probably just recently left. I forget now, but it was a while back. And the point is, former senior government official asked a very direct question. And he, he's okay with lying. He'll just say, you know, nope. I can I can neither confirm nor deny. That's always an acceptable answer. When you're working at the level of the intelligence community that, well, really anyone does, but certainly somebody like Clapper, I understand why he might have to for legal reasons. I can't confirm or deny. That's fine. I wouldn't have any grief, any problem with that whatsoever. But, but for him to say that I would know and there wasn't anything... That does strike me as a problem because we are having this, these two things are happening at the same time. Our trust in senior government intelligence and law enforcement officials is going down for all kinds of reasons that we've been talking about here on the show. But our trust in them has been going down when simultaneously we are seeing private citizen after private citizen facing pretty long prison sentences for lying about unimportant stuff. Now, I understand the difference in process between lying to federal agents versus just lying on national TV, but the truth is supposed to matter no matter what. The truth is not supposed to be something that only matters if you have the possibility of criminal jeopardy attached to it. And yet, we have been lied to so many times by predominantly former Obama administration officials from the intelligence community, from the FBI, they have just been lying and lying and lying. And they wonder why we have at least some questions about how worthwhile it is to have the Mueller investigation, the Mueller probe running around bringing charges against individuals for the equivalent of lying about a non-crime. You can see that this this there's a power imbalance. And I understand what their justification for it would be, but I do not think it is just. I think there is a principle that is being eroded in this process. That the truth should ma- the truth should matter no matter what, especially if you are a senior government official. All right, we're going to roll into a quick break. We come back. I'm going to talk to you about chocolate milk because I love it. I think I've told you before that I am in fact a fan of. Chocolate milk. Well, milk of all kinds, as long as it's real milk, as long as we're not talking about some of the funky milks that are out there that are not milks. Uh, For example, soy milk, not milk. Soy milk tastes like what I imagine after running a few miles, if you were to wring out my sock and add some chalk to it, that is what soy milk tastes like. Soy milk is gross. Um, Almond milk is a little better than soy milk, but still unacceptable to call it milk it's really it really should be almond juice or almond flavored water uh, 
chocolate milk is amazing, and I don't drink it that often because it's unfortunately a little, uh, a little bit of a dad bod creator. You know, yeah. You have like a Nestle Quick, and you look at what you've just done to yourself, and you might as well just go all in with a a, a chocolate milkshake, which is the ultimate the ultimate indulgence. But this is new. What I'm going to tell you here, uh, you might not have seen this. Some of you might have. Illinois Governor Bruce Rauner. I didn't even know who this guy was. Uh, he was making a point about diversity. And thought that the best way, this was just this week, thought the best way to make his point was to drink chocolate milk because chocolate milk is like diversity? I don't know. Play it. And if you look at any corporate website and look at its leadership team, you'll see all white men, a few white women, and just maybe an Asian in technology. This chocolate served represents diversity. Women, people of color, people with disabilities, the aging population, Generation X, Y, and Z. It's not that organizations are not diverse, but when you look at most organizations, diversity sits what? At the bottom of the organization. You don't get inclusion until you actually stir it up. I want you to stir it up, Governor. Stir it up. Diversity is the mix, and inclusion is making the mix work. And it actually tastes pretty good, but I'm not going to ask the governor to drink it because it may not be good, but it does taste good. I'll drink it. I'll You'll be drink proud it. To. He'll be proud too. There you go. So diversity it's is really, really good. <laughs> now, I would agree that chocolate milk is is really good. Uh, I would agree that it is. Uh, you know, it tastes good. That was Tyrone Stoudemire, who's the Hyatt Hotels Vice President of Global Diversity who was the one making that presentation and, and then gave gave to the governor and the governor's drinking chocolate milk. I, mean, I, I guess the I guess the point is made, but I just I didn't realize we could politicize one of my favorite drinks. Uh, I, I suppose now there's a whole other direction we could go in with, you know, what other what other confections are there out there? And what do you call it when you're now a if you work at a oh, you're a mixologist. So if you dress in a certain way and are at a certain kind of establishment that sells liquor, uh, you can be a mixologist. How you dress, I think it's, uh, you just have to look cool. I don't know what that specifically means, but that's, being a mixologist is basically a fancy word for saying you're a, you're a bartender. But you're a bartender who makes things that involve uh, different seasonal fruits and herbs, and maybe you light some things on fire. That's the difference with the mixologist. Uh, at least that's from what I've seen. I've been to some places where there mix, there's mixology going on. Uh, yes, but but drinking uh, chocolate milk now is is the, is a commitment to diversity. I've got to say one of the one of the great jobs of all time has got to be a, a to be a lar- and a large corporation and be the president for global diversity because well, you're, there there could always be more diversity. And no one's ever allowed to say, no, we've got enough diversity, actually. So your, your, your job security is great. There's always more room for more diversity. What does diversity mean? Whatever you say it means. And no one's really going to be able to challenge you. You really can't get fired because you're going to fire the head of diversity? I don't think so, unless they do something really bad. Uh, and and for just for a reminder for those of you who like my trips down memory lane, um, Michelle Obama the former first lady of the United States, I believe was being paid almost $300,000 a year while her husband was a, a state senator 
to be the diversity chief for a public hospital. That's a great gig. It's great. You get to be a diversity chief who's paid uh, like a surgeon, but you don't have to go to medical school or or do all that much. You just get to be a, a diversity chief. So, you know, there's another. That's another thing. Maybe maybe it's something I can aspire to. You know, maybe one day I'll be the diversity chief somewhere. That'd be that'd be kind of a fun gig, I think. Um, people would ask me what diversity means, and I would say, uh, uh, "Do we mean of ideas?" And they'd say, "How dare you!" And I'd be like, "Wait, hold on a second. I like chocolate milk, and chocolate milk shows diversity. See how I just brought that full circle, everybody? It was amazing. I know." Also, a little salt in the chocolate milk really brings out the flavors. I'm letting you a little little tip from somebody that knows these things. Just a little sprinkle, a little bit. I'm telling you. We're going to go into a break. We'll be back with Roll Call. Stay with me. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our Freestyle Friday here in the Freedom Hut, everybody. We're trying to make it as uh, lively and interesting as, as possible. It's been a quite a week in the news cycle. A lot of stuff that we've been talking about here. And i got to tell you, I am really... Looking forward to having a couple of days away from it. I'm, I'm not even planning on doing any TV this weekend. I'm actually thinking I'm going to just lay low for a couple of days. I've got some reading I want to get through. And, yes, I've got some Shields High podcast to work on. I don't know if I'm going to have it for Monday. Uh, I'm going to have it soon, though. You know, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the best I can do on the Shields High for right now. One of the things I was thinking about today is just how much I've become a person who drinks uh, this flavored sparkling water stuff that's out there now all the time. I'm all about it, man. I buy this stuff by the case now. So I've got to find one that I really like, and we got to get them to be a sponsor of the show just so I can have flavored sparkling water here all the time. I I don't want to name the brands right now because who knows? Maybe we'll get someone to join us here on air, uh, but partner up with the Freedom Hut. I just think that stuff is great. I try to avoid... I try to avoid drinking calories unless there's booze involved. And then, you know, you got you to gotta deal with it. That's just the way it's, it's going to be. Uh, but, yeah, with that, I think it's time for some Roll Call. Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. Sir, yes, sir. You have orders to enjoy your weekend, everyone, sir. Um, let's see what we get here. We have, uh, oh, Corinna. So she says, um, hey, Buck, lots to say here, so I'll be brief. I heard on your show a request for a sponsor for Shields High. Why not offer mini sponsorships to all your faithful followers? I can't give you 1000 bucks, but I can give you 20 Well, Curta, that's very, that's very kind of you, first of all. It's very kind if you can give me a dollar uh, for Shields High. I think you might be surprised how fast it would add up. Also, please put me in touch with your friend that does the service dogs for veterans. I breed uh, Cane Corsos and donate puppies to the Labs for Liberty, which provides specially trained service dogs 100% free of charge to veterans in need. Uh, I didn't know I could donate puppies or find another way, but I'd love to help the cause. Thanks and shields high. Well, Chris, first of all, you're very kind with the uh, willingness to be able. I I think we might have to go into that mode uh, where we might do a subscription on I'm not sure where exactly yet but a subscription for Shields High and then there'll be a guaranteed number of them each month we're, we're trying out different ideas and different models you know one of the problems we come up against in the media landscape is that there's so much I call it content anarchy but there's so much free 
and generally crap content out there that there's a, a perception that everyone kind of just wants all of their you know that people don't like to necessarily subscribe to things they want to just get it for free and then find ways to use like ad blockers and and not not allow for there to be uh, any monetization. This is a a thing that the marketplace is still working out, and on audio in particular, there's a lot of change I think is coming. Kind of random. iTunes doesn't let you do subscribe podcasts, so for some reason, app the Apple uh, Store has decided that if you have a, a a hit single, you can charge anybody ninety nine cents for it. But if you wanted to charge for Downloads of a podcast, and I know a lot of you listening actually have your own podcasts. Uh, people are getting into podcasting right now the way that folks were getting into blogging back in the in the nineties. Uh, but anyway, uh, Karina, it's a very kind of you, a uh, very kind thing that you would offer to give any money for the Shields High podcasts coming for, uh, going forward. And I am I am hoping that. Uh, we could find a way to keep them going. Yeah, because it's a big, it's a big time commitment. I do it because I love it, uh, but it does draw me off of other projects and things. And so it's it's tough to tell the the bosses who are uh, who are keeping the lights on and the and the radio electrified in here uh, that I'm just going to do stuff for free in my spare time. So with that, we've got um, Roger, and he writes, "Hey, Buck, just heard the podcast from last night." In addition to the despicable use of Never Again and the Resistance, don't forget about the imbecilic use of Denier to uh, to slur climate hysteria skeptics shields high. Roger, I totally agree with you, and I do think uh, that it's important to remember that they use the term Denier specifically so that they can imply that anyone who denies climate change uh is some is morally equivalent to a Holocaust denier. That is the purpose of all of that. So, uh, yes, indeed. Uh, let's see what we get here. James, next up. Um, James writes, Hey, Buck, there's been so much focus on the federal government's role in protecting schools. My question is, why aren't we talking about what the states and local governments are allowed to do? There are already places where school employees are allowed to carry seems to me uh, that this is a local issue and all the feds really need to do is stay uh, out of the way. I'm not saying the president shouldn't use his bully pulpit to affect change. He certainly should. I may be wrong, but isn't this more of a policy issue than a legal one? If so, it seems that changes could be very quick and easy. Love the show. Thank you. And P.S. More episodes of Shields High. Um, Well, James, uh, yes, state and local law enforcement authorities certainly can do a lot more. I think one of the problems we face in trying to get them to do more right now, though, is that they failed so miserably and so totally in preventing this school shooting, despite all the warnings and all of the very clear signs that there was a problem. They weren't able to they weren't able to get it done. There was a I think I referred to it on Twitter as a maelstrom of incompetence and bureaucratic ineptitude and just it was it's been horrifying it's been really and in law enforcement that's involved with this you know i think we need to understand that ah, this is this is a distinction that will get lost with some folks but i'm gonna say it anyway because obama was pandering to the left-wing base with anti-police uh anti-police stuff on a regular 
on a regular basis, right? Whatever it is we would uh, specifically be referring to, President Obama would say, you know, the Cam- from the Cambridge police acted stupidly to, you know, if I, by the way, the whole Trayvon Martin thing didn't involve the police, but yet it was a gun issue and a racial issue and you know, all, all those different cases all the way through to Ferguson, uh, the Obama administration was feeding into a narrative that the cops overall are racist, are bad, and we need a serious overhaul. Now, that's a lie, and it's really irresponsible for the former commander-in-chief to have taken that tone, and I've said that many times, stretching back for years. But now we're in a new era with the Trump administration. That's not happening anymore. I understand there's some lingering effects of, of that narrative, and it's not that the left has given up, it's just they don't have the White House complicit in that slander campaign. But here's something else to keep in mind. There are bad cops. There are bad departments. There are precincts that are corrupt. There are officers who violate their oaths. And to call out some bad actions of cops is not to call all cops into question by, you know, it. it if somebody... And somebody from the conservative side did do something this week publicly that I did not like. He apologized, though, so I'll let it go, but said something, some stuff publicly that wasn't good. But if someone criticizes another person in the news and commentary business, I don't take it personally. Right? And, and I think that we need to separate out that criticizing the sheriff of Broward County and pointing out that there were a lot of, as well as the FBI that was involved in this, is not saying that everyone involved in law enforcement has got this problem or that every, you know, that's not what we're doing here. But we also have to live in the real world and have to stay within the facts. And I think that's where we can run into trouble if you get this knee-jerk response. And I think we hit some of the knee-jerk response yesterday with, oh, well, we can't judge the actions of the deputy who didn't go into the school. Well, first of all, the president was very much judging him and has been doing it for 24 hours. Uh, but in addition to that, no, no, we, we there's there's judgment. Uh, it's not a it's not a a future that I accept where police and other people that are in the position to save or protect lives are above criticism because so many of them are great. Yes. The majority of them are wonderful and doing such important stuff and really keeping society together. But when there's somebody who is crappy, we got to be able to say that. Right? So that's, a, that's I think, an important distinction. And it's a change with the between where we were with the previous administration and where we are now. It's a positive change, but we need to be cognizant that that is what is going on. Uh, William. We got a ton of messages in here this week, so I'm trying to see. And some of you, and I appreciate you can always write me more than one message, but I try to mix it up with different different folks because we've got thousands and thousands of messages coming into the uh, Facebook inbox here. He writes following, I do know how I'd react. I might scream uh, like someone on my upon their imminent death, but I'm going to go headfirst into my death in defense of others. This isn't just bravado. It's protection of our loved ones and our children. I'm 45 and from the South. I carry knives and guns, so I'm very, very angry about the Florida response. So, William, I, I agree, and I was obviously angry yesterday, too. And there's something also different here. When we're talking about a police officer who were to you know, come under fire during a bank robbery or something, I understand people can freeze up and— 
with this individual down in Broward County at the Marjorie Douglas School, we're talking about somebody who knew there was a a mass bloodletting of children happening. And I, I just I think that if you're not taking action, then you're there's you're never taking action. I mean, you're you're, you're incapable of of bravery or, or courage or duty. So I, I know people say people have been very mad at me. Some of them said very harsh things. You know, you know, you don't know. You weren't there. Uh, I know enough, I think. And look, at the end of the day, I'm not anyone's judge. That's up to God. But it is it is for me to have opinions on these matters. And I've shared that one with you. Uh, so with with that, my friends, I think we got to let it. Uh, unfortunately, I got to let the shop close up here. I think the Freedom Hut, it is time to. Close it up. Uh, I want you all to have a fantastic weekend. Like I said before, your orders are to have a great weekend. I have a feeling that next week is going to be a a busy one in the uh, world of news commentary and everything else. So I'm excited to have you joining me here. Please do tell some folks if you can, if you're bored and want to chat with somebody about something, say, hey, have you heard about this Buck Sexton guy? You are my uh, my eyes and ears out there across the country, and you're the uh, best hope that the show has of continuing to grow. So please do tell folks they can always download the podcast on iTunes. Uh, Have a great weekend, everybody. Try to get some uh, rest, and I'll see you on Monday. Shields high.